0: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Now I'm going to stop there just briefly because that that last couple of verses uh, leads us with some gigantic questions. Okay, so I just want to paint the picture for you and get you a sense of what we're really talking about. The earth is formless and void; it's basically a water-based planet, and it's just sort of uh, in its infancy. And the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the waters. And it says then he separates the waters below from the waters above. He creates waters that are above the atmosphere. And there's an expanse or an atmosphere, if you will, between the actual waters of the earth and waters that are above the atmosphere. All right? So picture that. If you've got a a, a spherical earth and then probably the best we could do to describe this waters above would be some sort of a a canopy of moisture and water that surrounds the entire globe. And between it is what we would call atmosphere or sky. Um, The Bible uses a bunch of different words for it. Depending on your translation, you might have the word heavens. You might have the word atmosphere. You might have the word firmament. You might have the word expanse. Whatever the word is, it is the atmosphere in which we live and breathe. And so you have this atmosphere that is separating waters, water on the planet and then water that is above. And we're not going to get into this in any detail, but one of the primary theories about all of that is essentially the, the earth was created very much like a greenhouse, It was designed to flourish. It was designed to create life and for life to be abundant upon the earth. And so God creates this sort of greenhouse effect by creating this uh, canopy that is around the earth. And it is not, we think, until the flood of Noah, which though that canopy is essentially Broken and that water comes down to the earth to flood the earth. But in the beginning, you have waters on the earth and waters above the earth. And this is all of this is theory because the scripture doesn't tell us and none of us was there, right? So take all this with a grain of salt. But the most common theory among biblical theologians and scientists is that um, this created a perfect atmosphere for the sustaining of life, very much like a greenhouse would create a perfect atmosphere for sustaining of plant life. And as as a result we see the lives of human beings 950 years 970 years and and as we look at those generations of these people that lived the 900s and the 800s and 700 years and as time goes on after the flood we see those ages dropping and dropping and dropping because the earth is no longer as conducive to sustaining life after the flood as it had been before the flood so when you're wondering what this firmament is or this expanse The other challenging thing about this is that, depending on your translation, if it uses the word heaven or heavens, um, it uses it in multiple ways. One of the ways it uses is to describe this uh, atmosphere or this expanse between the waters. Another way is to describe space, so the planets and stars. And another way that it uses the word heavens is to describe the dwelling place of God, which is a spiritual place beyond all of this, right? And so it can get a little bit confusing. And in this case, when we're talking about the heavens, we are not talking about outer space and we're not talking about the dwelling place of God and angelic beings. We are talking about the atmosphere in which our earth exists, okay? Now, let's pick it up in verse 9. Then God said, let the, waters below and, uh, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, verse 14, Then God said, let there be light in the expanses, in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse for the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was Good God blessed them, saying, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth." There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, "Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind, and everything that uh, creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living uh, thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day." Last week, as we said, we focused just on chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1.1, we'll see who is listening. You get 100 points if you get this right. What does Genesis 1.1 say? Good. Maybe if you could all do it in unison next time, that would be better, but that's okay. Yeah, 100 points for everybody, Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we talked about how foundational that statement is for all of life following, that for us to even have any sense or understanding of overall big picture truth, we have to understand that verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that verse leads us to a question. And the question is, why? I wonder why. Why would God create all of this stuff? And and we get the details, you know, so we get the, the most summary statement in verse one, he created the heavens and the earth. And then we get the details in the following verses on day one, he did this, day two, this, three, four, five, and six. And then in chapter two, we get even some more of the details of day six. But, but why do it? Was, was it because God was, bored? No, God doesn't get bored. Was it because God was uh, lonely? No, God doesn't get lonely. In fact, we just saw, where is it? Verse um, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now that's really interesting. God said, let us, plural. Now, Now, are there any other gods? I just want to clarify. There's no other gods, right? Let us make man in our, plural, image, according to our likeness. So us is plural, our image and likeness. But image and likeness are singular. Let us make man in our singular image. God is speaking to someone here, that's the us, someone who shares his image, right? Someone who shares his likeness, someone who shares his essence. And so we get our first glimpse at what the Bible will unpack for us throughout the following pages of the doctrine of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, right? That we have a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always existing. And as we read the rest of Scripture, what we discover is that the Father was there at creation in it, the Spirit was there and active at creation, and the Son was there and active in creation, okay? So when he says, let us make man in our image, it's not because he's lonely. In fact, God is inherently relational. So why? Why did he do all of this? Well, to give a general answer, and then we'll unpack this a little bit, the general overview says... God created all that he created for the same reason God does everything for his own glory, okay? So we have to begin there. I don't want us to get confused. I don't want us to think that somehow the center of God's world is people. I want us to understand that God is supposed to be the center of our world, amen? So we don't want to get that turned around. God does everything that he does for his glory. And specifically in this case, What he did to bring himself glory was done on the sixth day when he created man, the only thing that he created in his image, in his likeness. God said, I'm going to create someone who is a reflection of me. Now, everything God created was created to give him glory. But humans are in a position to give God glory that nothing else in creation is able to do. So God created all that He created to provide an atmosphere that was conducive to human life. Humanity is the point of all of this creation. Humanity is the point of the solar systems and the galaxies. Humanity is the point of the rocks and the rivers and the trees and the animal life. Humanity is the point of the atmosphere being made up chemically exactly the way that it is. In fact, if the earth was even slightly different in shape or size, it could not sustain human life. It has to be the size it is. It has to be the shape it is. If it were, if it were even, even 10% different in its distance from the sun, 93 million miles from the sun, if it was just a little closer, it would be far too hot to sustain human life. If it was just slightly further away, everything would be frozen and it would not be able to sustain human life. The the earth is on an axis, right? You guys remember this from fifth grade? The earth is on an axis And that axis is at an angle, right? And that angle is 23 degrees. If that 23 degree angle were slightly uh, larger or slightly smaller, the earth would not be able to to sustain life throughout the earth the way that it does currently. If the size of the earth's orbit were different than it is, it would not be able to sustain human life. Uh, if the earth had significantly more or less water than it has, it would not be able to sustain human life. If the oceans were, were made up of water that did not contain a large amount of salt, it would not be able to sustain human life. If, if the distance of the moon or the speed of the orbit of the moon were different than it is, the earth would probably not be able to sustain human life. Um, if the makeup, the chemical makeup of the atmosphere that we breathe were different than it is, it would not be able to sustain human life. Are you getting the picture? God custom designed everything for human life. We're the point. God made all that he made to give him glory and the, and the crowning achievement of that was when he made man. So at the end of day one, he says it's good. At the end of day two, he says it's good. At the end of day three, it's good. At the end of day four, it's good. At the end of day five, it's good. And at the end of day six, it is very good. And God rests from all his work of creation on day seven. Isaiah 45, 18 tells us that God created the earth for us to inhabit. That's why he created it. So why did God create the heavens and the earth? Uh, Why all the plants? Why all the animals? Why the atmosphere? He did all that for you and me. So those first five days of creation are really important and really significant and you have no idea how much discipline it takes me not to spend three weeks on every one of those days of creation, but as important as they are and significant as they are, they are primarily important and significant in that they sustain human life. And that we as human beings are given responsibility over the earth, dominion and rulership over the earth, authority over the earth, and stewardship of all of creation. Now, let's go back to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to zero in on day 6 when God begins to create us. Verse 26 then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves On the earth. So we get this early glimpse of the Trinity in verse 26, and we also get this early glimpse of man. And when I use the word man, I don't mean male, I mean mankind, human, okay? And he says that man is made male and female. So, in case there's any confusion about the genders, God created man, male and female. Now, I don't say that with any level of disrespect or sarcasm. I understand that there are, some, there are some major issues going on in our culture today over the issue of gender, and I understand that there are psychological issues within certain individuals who are dealing with gender identity, and I'm not making light of that, and I'm not mocking that. I am saying, however, that when God created, He was very specific. He did create gender. He created male and female, and that's the end of the genders that he created. Now, um, that's where we're going today. We're going to camp out in those, in those verses today. But before we really start digging into this topic, I need to remind you a little bit about the character of this God who created all of these things. Because, frankly, um, as, as you're going to see in a few moments we're going to get practical with this. And when we get practical, we're going to talk about some things that uh, are highly controversial. And we're going to talk about some things that could be uh, highly sensitive to various ones of us in the room. And so I want us to be absolutely clear before we stand up and make these dogmatic statements about God. I want us to remember just who this God is and just what he's like so that we can put these things in perspective and understand what God is going to say. Now, we won't take the time to turn there, but you can do this as reading at home this week. If you want, go to read John chapter eight. In John chapter eight, you're gonna find this well-known story, right? Jesus and these other rabbis and religious men are gathered out in the temple courtyard and they're there for worship. Suddenly, there's this great commotion, and there's kind of a mob scene that takes place. And this group of men comes charging into the temple courtyard, and they throw somebody down into the dirt. And that somebody turns out to be a half naked woman. And they say, We have caught this woman in the very act of adultery, which always causes me to say, Where's the dude? Right, Um, it's this this double standard apparently is not new in our in the world today. Right, and and yet uh, obviously this woman is a pawn in their game. Right, they weren't interested in justice. They weren't interested in righteousness. They weren't interested in punishment for God's glory. What they were interested in doing was making Jesus look bad. So they bring this woman and they treat her as a tool in their game. They throw her on the ground. Imagine the humiliation. Imagine the shame of this, right? In a society that is extremely conservative when it comes to sexuality and in the place of worship, surrounded by men, religious leaders at that, and she is, to some degree, dragged from her bed, and this is the condition in which she is thrown before them, right? And of course, you know the story. Uh, they say the, the, the book of Moses, right, tells us that we can stone a woman like this. What do you say? And then the scripture gives us this crazy story where Jesus bends down and he's writing with his finger in the dirt, which causes us all to freak out and go, oh, what is he writing? And we have no idea. That's the answer. We have no idea what he's writing. So don't even worry about it. But he's writing in the dirt something, drawing something with his finger in the dirt, and he's just creating time to pass, right? And as he's doing that, he says, let him among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And the scripture says that all of those men, beginning with the oldest right on down to the youngest, drop their stones, and walk away. And and finally, it's quiet. And you hear nothing but the the sniffling of the woman. And then we get this picture. And and this this is how I see it. Jesus bending down, taking her chin in his hand and lifting her face and looking into her swollen eyes he says, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, me either. I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. See... You can think of all these pictures that you want to think about the manifestation of the glory of God. Jesus standing up in the boat, speaking to the wind and the waves, and they become calm in his presence. Jesus up against a legion of demons, and he speaks, and they're immediately cast out, right? Jesus raising the dead, and Lazarus comes stumbling out of the tomb alive. These incredible pictures of the manifestation of the glory of God in Jesus. But I'd say to you, you would be hard-pressed to find another picture That shows a greater manifestation of the glory of God than Jesus offering grace and forgiveness to this guilty woman. This is the character of God. So before we get too far into what we need to talk about today, let's remember this. John chapter 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Or or Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we start talking about specific issues today, and some of those issues touch home in your heart, if you are hearing a voice of self-condemnation in your head, here's what I want to tell you in advance, it's not the voice of God. He did not come to condemn you. He did not bring you here today to condemn you. He brought you here today to set you free from self-condemnation, free from sin, free from the bondage of shame and guilt. That's what this is about. This is not about judging. This is not about finger pointing. This is about lifting of faces. This is about the pouring out of grace. And you're thinking, what is he talking about? Stay with me, I'll get you there. I just want to clear up any of that confusion in advance. Here's what you need to know. Let me summarize. God loves you immensely. He doesn't have you here today to condemn you. When you have a Christian worldview, though, you always have an extremely high view of the dignity and value of people. And, and that's because God has that view. It's because we are made in the image of God. Human beings made in the image of God, only we reflect his glory in the way that we do. Everything in creation is designed to bring him glory, but only human beings are made with the capacity to relate to him on a spiritual, relational level. Only we worship him. Because we're human, we have a unique way of relating to him because we're human. We have a unique way of relating to the rest of creation. What does it say? I have given you dominion over all of this. Over all of what? Over the earth? Over the vegetation? Over the animals? It is our responsibility to be a good steward of what God has given us to sustain human life. That's the purpose. So all of creation is given to us to sustain our lives and we're given dominion over the rest of creation. So that means two things. Number one, it means that humans and animals are different to the core. This is so essential for us to understand. I don't care what happened in Planet of the Apes, okay? Think about this, there are, there are many animals that are much stronger and more powerful than human beings, right? And yet, we have dominion over all. That's because God gave it, because we're created in the image of God, because only we have that side of our being. Nothing else in creation does. So bearing the image of God means that we have a unique relationship to all of creation, and that means responsibility. So let's be careful going, well, you know, it's not really about creation, and it's not about the animals. Listen, God gave us responsibility to care for the environment. We can't just blow that off. We can't just go, well, it's good for the economy. Who cares what happens to the environment? God tells us to take dominion over creation and to care for it. So we have to take that seriously. But at the same time, we have to remember that the the rest of creation is in a much lower class or category of creation than human beings are. It makes us very, very different different way of relating to God, different way of relating to the rest of creation and certainly a different and unique way of relating to each other right we have a responsibility to each other and when I say we have a responsibility to each other, I mean we are called to bear one another 's burdens we are called to love one another we are called to encourage one another there's so many things in scripture if you've been around church any length of time in your life you've heard over and over you know in the body of Christ we need to take care of one another and all that kind of stuff i'm not just talking about the body of Christ here i'm talking about humanity all of us as humans regardless of faith system regardless of gender regardless of race regardless of age regardless of nationality or location or wealth or class or any of that kind of stuff we are we are called to be together and support one another and when we don't do that we are missing the mandate that God has given us in scripture we have a responsibility to each other and that means we're taught by God to respect to honor and to treasure one another and most of what we experience as evil in the world has to do with our failure to do that So God has placed within every human being an inherent dignity and a value that simply outshines everything else in creation. People matter to God. We have a unique place in his heart. We're uniquely related to God just by nature of being humans. And by the way, this unique value and this unique relationship begins in the womb, I want you to see this. Go to, go to um, Psalm 139. So in Old Testament book of Psalms, if you just open your Bible right to the middle, you'll probably land in Psalms. Go to Psalm 139. And I want you to see this because I want you to understand that this dignity that is inherently human, it applies to humans of every age, every race, both genders, every nationality, all of that. That, that there is no... Uh, demarcation made between humans when it comes to value, when it comes to dignity. We're all made in the image of God. Now, in Psalm 139, we have this beautiful poem where the psalmist is talking about his intimacy with God and how deeply God knows him. And I wish I had time to to cover the whole psalm, but we're gonna pick it up in verse 13. Here's what he says to God. For you formed my inward parts... You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. This is so beautiful. This is so powerful to realize. Do you, do you see the language there? There's nothing here that implies anything accidental is happening in the womb, right? We're being knit together. Now, now we live in the 21st century, we understand what is going on in a woman's womb during the gestational process. We understand the biology and the physiology of all of that. In fact, we, uh, we know more about this than anyone in the history of the world has ever known because of modern technology, right? They now have the ability, and, and often do, put cameras into the womb so that you could see the entire process of the child going from, from a sperm and an egg all the way to being ready to be born, and we can now see that with our eyes and we know what that's all about and it's amazing and it's stunning and there's nothing accidental about it. There's nothing that involves chance. That, 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 do you realize that, that God has given you a unique DNA code that nobody else in all of history has ever had? Do you understand? I, I know you, you've heard this, but, but you know, somewhere between six and eight weeks gestationally, A human baby has all of its inward parts. All of its organs are formed by that point. Its heart, his or her heart, is beating on its own. His or her blood is being circulated through his body because his own heart or her own heart is beating. This is an individual being. Now, I'm not making a political statement. This is not what that's about. I just want to be absolutely clear. This is a human being. This is not a growth on a mother's body. This is a human being. And, And the scripture talks about God relating to us even at that early stage of our lives. It's astonishing and it says, "We are fearfully and wonderfully made, skillfully wrought in our mother's womb, God with his, with his knitting needles and knitting us together." It's an incredibly poetic picture. You don't have to jump through any hoops before God cares about you. He cares about you in the womb. You, you don't have to be of a certain race or gender or political persuasion for God to draw near to you. All you have to do is be human. And, and there is a movement afoot today to, to give less and less dignity to humans just on the basis of humanity. And so people are discriminated against based on whether they're in or out of the womb. People are discriminated against depending on their age. People are discriminated against based on their gender. People are discriminated against based upon their religion. People are discriminated against based upon race and nationality and financial standing and social status and all of these other reasons. People are dishonored at all stages of life. And God says, you... And everyone else in the world was made in his image. Inherently valuable. Inherently dignified. Every human being has immeasurable inherent dignity. We're a reflection of God himself. And that's why it's tragic and evil every time any human being is treated as less than human as any human being is treated as less than worthy, or when any human being is treated without respect. Now, in case you're wondering why all this matters and what difference it makes in our lives today, let me ask you to, to think with me about this. Right, the obvious implication from th- Psalm 139 has to do with abortion. And this is not an abortion sermon, although I've preached some abortion sermons. Th- this And by the way, pro-life issues, oh man. Okay. (laughs) Pro-life issues are not an issue of political persuasion. They're an issue of biblical truth. Either human beings have dignity because they're made in the image of God or they don't. That's the point. And we are making a mistake. If you are in the pro-life world, if you believe in the sanctity of human life and you fight for that sort of thing, that movement is making a huge mistake by essentially aligning itself in one political camp as though it's based on politics. It is not based on politics. It's based on the inherent dignity of human beings. I don't care whether you're a Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or Independent. It doesn't matter. Human beings have Dignity. They have dignity in the womb and they have dignity with a feeding tube at the age of 105. They have dignity. And so abortion is inherently evil because it robs a human being of their dignity and worth. And and that's the same reason that it's evil to put an old person to death because they're no longer contributing to society in the way that they used to. That's why it's inherently evil that we have such an issue worldwide and nationally and right here in Los Angeles County with human trafficking. That's, that's why it's inherently evil that, that so many societies today still have legalized slavery. That, that's why it's inherently evil when there are people who have, who have strong held bigotry and prejudice based on things like race and age and gender and those kinds of things. That's why spousal abuse is wrong, right? Because your spouse is a human being made in the image of God. That's why child abuse is evil, It's not because the child is small, it's not because the child is weak, it's because the child is human. And human beings have dignity. This is why sexual harassment is evil. It's wrong. It shouldn't take place. And that's why there are so many movements afoot these days to say, hey, can we get back to some sense of social justice? Or are we just gonna keep taking those who are weaker in our society and keep using them for the for the pleasures of those who are stronger? (sighs) Sorry, I'm excited about this. (laughs) See, we are human and because we're human, we have dignity. And, and let's think this through just logically. First of all, if there is no creator God, as, as uh, Genesis 1-1 argues, if there's no creator God, then life on earth really should be a matter of survival of the fittest. If there is no creator God and therefore people are not made in the image of this creator God, if in fact there is no creator God and therefore there is no one who is the arbiter of right and wrong and morality, then truly whoever is the strongest should rule over whoever else is weaker. That would be the case. But that is not the case and everything inside every human being knows that. We know it. It's inherent within us. Secondly, if man is not made in the image of God, There's no real reason to treat any other human being with any level of dignity or respect. They're only worth what they're worth to you to help you get ahead in life, which is the way too many people treat people. And it is the natural, reasonable, and logical approach of atheism. If you don't believe Genesis 1.1, if you don't believe Genesis 1.26 and 27, then you should Do whatever you can to get yourself ahead because there is no right, there is no wrong, and there is nobody that is any more worthy of anything else. You should no more kill a cockroach than kill a person, or you should be just as happy to kill a person as to kill a cockroach. Do you see that this is important? (laughs) Do you see the implications of all this? This is huge. Everything we hold dear in our Bibles, we're gonna get into this next week, but but so many of the doctrines that we as Christians hold dear and say, yes, this is what I stand, I plant my flag on this doctrine, that doctrine doesn't make sense and doesn't add up and doesn't hold up if Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.26 and 27 are not true. Our whole faith depends upon this. Listen, because of sin... Those who are strong physically, those who are strong financially, those who are strong in terms of weaponry, those who are strong in terms of political power, because of the fall, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we'll get there. But Genesis chapter 3, in case you haven't read ahead, something terrible happens. And from that point on, people stop treating each other with inherent dignity. From that point on, it gets ugly. Things like murder come into the picture. We're going to read about that in Genesis. Things like rape come into the picture. We're going to read about that in Genesis. Dishonesty, uh, inhumanity to humans—it all comes into play because of the fall. And ever since the fall, those who are stronger have taken advantage of those who are weaker. That is true. It's not an American problem. It's not—it's not just a racial problem. It's not just uh, you know white males in America that are the problem. It is those who have power because of the fall have a tendency to take advantage of those who have less power. That has been true in every culture and every society for all time. Do you see why understanding the value of human dignity is at the forefront of fixing these things? Here's the bottom line. All human beings have great dignity and worth and they're worthy of love and respect simply because they're human. We gotta get that straight. If Genesis 1.1 wasn't true, if Genesis 1.27 wasn't true, then all that human dignity goes out the window. But it is true. And humans do have inherent dignity, even though we're damaged by the fall. And (laughs) there's so much more to say, um, but there's no more time to say it. So I want to wrap this up by making it very practical, right? I want us to understand this. Because... If all this is true, what do you do when you realize in your heart that you are guilty of sinning against God by sinning against the dignity of other human beings? I told you the story from John chapter 8 that I told you because I want you to have fixed in your heart this picture of Jesus who is the lifter of our head the forgiver of our sins, the one who came to set us free and not to condemn us. What do you do when it's not the voice of self-condemnation that is condemning you, but it's the actual voice of the Holy Spirit because you are guilty? What do you do? There's no way, even in a crowd this size, it would be almost impossible for me to be speaking to this group and not have at least somebody in here whose life has been directly touched by abortion just the, the numbers in our society tell me that's true, that you you are either the man who who uh, fathered a child, paid for an abortion, pushed for an abortion to happen. You're a woman who had an abortion, uh, or abortion touched your family in some other way. Maybe your own mother had an abortion and you never met a sibling. There is no way that in this room there are not people for whom this hits home personally when I talk about abortion. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons that so often preachers don't talk about it. But here's the point you have worth you have dignity. Jesus is not interested in condemning you. Every voice in your head would love to condemn you. Jesus is interested in setting you free. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the point. So, so, you know, at some point we got to look in the mirror and go, yeah, I've been guilty of racial prejudice, I've been guilty of sexual harassment. I've been guilty of mistreating my spouse, my children. I've been guilty of uh, abortion. I, I've, been, I've been whatever. And what do you do when that's real? You know what you do? You, you let Jesus lift your chin. You let him look you in the eye and you don't shrink back. And you accept His cleansing grace. Because it's the grace of God alone that is able to restore the dignity that gets robbed from us every time we give our lives to sin. Jesus came to set us free. Repentance is possible because of what Christ did on the cross. You are not the sum total of your sins and mistakes. You're a child of God, knit together in the womb of your mother with a plan that God had. And he designed you to be the best version of you that you can be. And he said, I came not to condemn, but to give them life and that more abundantly. That's God's plan for your life. And so if you've been on the side of judging and condemning those who have committed sins, you need to repent. If you've been on the side where it has been your sin that you've just been hiding and and hiding away from God, you need to repent. But that repentance isn't some penance. It's not a way of making it up to God. What did that woman laying in the dirt have to offer Jesus? Absolutely nothing. But he had something to offer her, didn't he? By the way, don't let it get lost on you. When he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he was the only one qualified and he chose not to. That's the God who created the universe. That's the God who created you. That's the God whose dignity you reflect and that's the God who has an amazing plan for your life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are humbled in your presence. We sang this morning, how great is our God. We talked about your wonders and your majesty. And now, Father, our our heads are bowed before you, our hearts bowed before you, because you are, by definition, infinitely greater than your creation. And yet, by your goodness, you have made us in your image. I pray for everyone here who is feeling the pain of their own sin. And I pray, God, that you would help each one of us to walk in repentance, to actually follow you from this point forward, to accept the grace that cost you so much to give us. I pray for every one of us who's had a tendency to judge and point fingers and, 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 and be prejudiced against others. Help us, Father to repent of that. Help us to see in other people the incredible beauty and dignity that is a reflection of you. And may we walk in such a way that the light of Christ shines through us and the world sees it and responds. We ask these things in Jesus' name.